You're listening to the Faith Unpacked Podcast. Welcome back to the Faith Unpacked Podcast with Jason and Jamie. This is episode 192. And this week, Jason is out. He's off being a good husband for his wife. They're off on a little trip together, a little getaway, which I think is awesome. I really appreciate that about Jason, that he really seeks to be a good husband and father to his kids, to really seek the Lord and to be obedient to God's word, uh, to love and serve his wife and his kids. And that absolutely should be celebrated and encouraged, especially in our culture where it is so rare to see husbands and wives actually seeking to live in line with God's word and God's design for a husband and wife by the power of God's spirit. And so absolutely encourage him. He's an awesome, godly man, a good husband, good father. So that's why he's out this week. Uh, I will be talking with you about a question that often comes up, and it's related to, I think, one of the most confused and in some ways challenged ideas that often come up in the life of the church, and that is related to the Holy Spirit, the coming on of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. And one of the specific things that really confuses a lot of people is the four instances in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit does not come upon people when they accept the Lord Jesus Christ, when they're saved. They, the Holy Spirit comes on them later on. And some have taken this to mean that if you want the Holy Spirit, you have to seek it separate from your salvation. Uh, this idea is often called the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the filling of the Holy Spirit. I've heard different terms for the idea, but basically the idea is you are saved in one work, and then you have to seek the filling or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that's a whole separate work. And this idea confuses a lot of people, and so we get questions about this a lot as it relates to this topic. And it's a great question because, yeah, these are actual instances in the book of Acts, and they're really important. But I want to I wanna first build a foundation on this topic by, first of all, recognizing what was the purpose of these what we call sign gifts or these special movements of the Holy Spirit, these special giftings of the Holy Spirit, what what are they? What were they for? And you see some, some guidance in Scripture as to what was the purpose of these things and what all is relating to that. Now, it's safe to say both Jason and I are not of the Pentecostal persuasion. If you've been a listener of this podcast for a while, you would know that as we've addressed these topics and, and addressed these issues in various forms and in different ways in different podcasts. That does not mean that we do not respect and love our brothers and sisters in Christ who are of the Pentecostal persuasion. Um, we've had many friends, even on this podcast, that are much more Pentecostal than I am or that Jason is. And I also want to explain 
when we talk about these issues, uh, typically when it comes to the sign gifts of the Spirit, these the view on these are really broken up into two camps, right? You have what we call cessationists. Those are the people that believe that some gifts, some special gifts, the sign gifts, were given by the Lord for a specific purpose, and they have ceased. That is to say, not that the Lord cannot use these things, but that he is not currently doing that. The other view is continuationist, which just says that all of these gifts have continued, and there was no uh, there was no cease, there was no stop in any of them, that that was a theological idea that that really gained its origin in the uh, 1900s and has moved forward. Um, this is often associated with um, like the old Dallas school and dispensationalism and, and all these kinds of things. So, uh, so that's traditionally the framework that this discussion really falls into. And I'm not really specifically going to speak to those specific issues, those specific camps or those viewpoints today, uh, partly because that's not directly the topic of this episode, and then partly because it's a much more broad conversation than certainly I have time to have with you here in just, you know, 20, 30 minutes. But I do want to lay a little bit of foundation to recognize that Scripture shows us that some of these gifts were not specifically normative for all Christians, that, that they actually had a specific purpose, and that purpose was very specific. Um, an example of that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. So the Apostle Paul's been arguing for his proof of apostleship, and he's really been reminding the church that they are his proof, right? They are the fact that they have accepted Christ and they have become a church and they have been uh, seeking to live for the glory of God despite, you know, their their serious issues, that they are evidence of the apostolic authority of the Apostle Paul, the fact that that came about. And and Paul says in, in verse 12, he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles, for for what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? And so Paul's pointing the church to the fact that they saw in him these special signs of an apostle, these, these special abilities or these special activities, these special giftings of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of proving, right, that this is really an apostle of the Lord, right? Lots of people can say lots of things, but they can't do what the apostles did. That's the idea, right? Just like one of the, the proofs of Jesus Christ as Messiah is he did things that nobody else could do, specifically to the fact that he could raise people from the dead, and he certainly did. You know, John chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead, and Lazarus was four days dead, right? He was dead, dead, dead. And Jesus was able to raise him back to life. And then ultimately, Jesus raised himself from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. That's a, that's a, or, um, that's a very powerful thing, right? That, that a work of the Holy Spirit in that case as well. 
according to what we read in Scripture, uh, that's not something that anybody else was able to do. So you have a powerful thing there. And at the same time, we also recognize that while these gifts may have been given more broadly to, to folks in the church for a specific time and for a specific purpose, which is the, the development of the church, right? The founding of the church, the purpose of people seeing the glory of God. And, and we'll get into that a little bit further. You'll see that as we go through these specific cases, if, if you want to you know, think of it that way. Um, but remember, we also have in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which I know our Pentecostal friends, if we have any that are listening to this podcast, they're immediately pulling their hair out right now because they hate, uh, they, they would argue, I shouldn't say hate, they would argue that we're misusing or misunderstanding this text of scripture. Um, but of course, I would argue we're not. Um, the in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know, it says love never fails, but but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And and the emphasis here is to recognize that these gifts are for a specific reason, for a specific purpose, at a specific time, and ultimately they aren't going to be normative forever. They will cease. They will go away at some point, and certainly we do see that in church history. I know that's disputed by some, uh, but that's the reality of it. In fact, you look at, you know, by the uh, two and three hundreds, these gifts had ceased. They had become unusual to the church. And you have writings from, you know, um, uh, church fathers of the time that speak to these realities of signed gifts. And they, they comment on how they don't really know what that looks like because they're not normative in practice. And that is the, the case until you get to the 1900s when a specific person decided that these gifts needed to come back and and took them back up, which we would definitely argue is not how spiritual gifts work. And so there is a, a clear reality to this. And even prophecy, there is other biblical texts that speak to that as well. Think of at the end of the book of Revelations, uh, it actually says that people... People would be cursed. Uh, anybody would be cursed if they try and add one more word to what was revealed, right? One more revelation to the completion of what God has to say in terms of the things that are to come. Now, I'm not going to get into the question of personal prophecy and all that kind of stuff, because uh, again, that's not the purpose here. But I just wanted to lay a little bit of foundation there. And in terms of 1 Corinthians 13, are we understanding it in its context? I would say yes, right? Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians is speaking about spiritual gifts. And chapter 14, again, is speaking about spiritual gifts and, and how we are to use them in the context of corporate worship and in line with order and so there, there have been a lot of confusion around that. But 
to say that we're not understanding chapter 13 as it relates to both the topic of speaking in tongues and, and those spiritual giftings and the greater argument of the book of 1 Corinthians, which is to argue for unity in Christ, right? He begins the book, the Apostle Paul begins the book by saying, hey, some people are with Paul and some people are with Apollos and some people are with Cephas or Peter and some people are with Christ. And then he asks that pivotal question, is Christ divided? The answer, of course, is no. And then he urges the church to be unified in Christ. Not unified in just, oh, we agree to be brothers and sisters even if we disagree or they're teaching heresy or they're teaching bad theology or they're... No, it's a unity in Christ. He's very specific what kind of unity it is. And so part of that then is, what does that unity in Christ look like in the context of marriage? What does it look like in the context of personal convictions and meat offered to idols and how, you know, how we handle all these different things? And then he gets into um, church discipline and lawsuits in the life of the church and sexuality and marriage and family and community and all these things, and then, of course, then gets into spiritual gifts, I, a thing that I think you can clearly see, and you would agree with me, has caused a lot of disunity when we are not seeking to be unified in Christ and instead be unified in this is what I believe or think or feel or whatever, and that's caused a great deal of angst. In fact, to the degree that if you recall... There never was a Pentecostal and non-Pentecostal part of the church. There was just the church, and it actually fully splintered over this issue as some people decided, you know, we truly understand the, the work of the Holy Spirit, and on the other side, we truly understand the work of the Holy Spirit, and the two sides split. And unfortunately, I mean, I'm of the belief that there never should have been a split in the first place because we all need each other, right? One side of the church has a tendency to get so caught up in the spirit that they reject either directly or indirectly um, the word of God and the proper use and role of the word of God in both corporate worship and in our day-to-day -day life and activity. Uh, we do believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God, and we are to understand it in its full context and unfortunately, too often, people will come to Scripture on that side and they'll say, um, I, I just let the Holy Spirit reveal the Word to me however He wills. Um, now, remember, the Holy Spirit does not speak against the Word of God. And so when the Word of God is being used outside of its context, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, we would say that's definitely not the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's a misuse. And I don't think in most cases it's intentional. I'm not talking about hardened wolves in the life of the church. I'm talking about really what I'd consider kind of just immature understanding of Scripture and not, you know, failing to, to look at that context that the verses come in. Um, anyway, you get the point there. And then on the other side, the church can get dead and dry and not be as drawn into the worship of God and into that personal relationship, you know, it becomes all head knowledge and behavior, right? Seeking to obey God, but not having actual 
deep, personal, abiding relationship with God. And both are certainly true. And I would even go as, as far as to say, yes, it's possible to have the full, close, deep, rich relationship with the Spirit. And it's possible to not. I think you can be a believer and certainly not fully experiencing or getting the most out of the relationship with the Lord that you could have. Either that's because of sin, active sin in your life, or because you're not really seeking the Lord, right? You're not spending time in prayer. You're not spending time in God's word, and thereby you don't grow, and you don't commune with the Lord in the way that you do when you do those things. So in the same way that, you know, you can want to have a good marriage relationship, but if you don't spend any time on your spouse, if you don't spend any time seeking to know them, to have a relationship with them, to have conversation with them, to get to know them, to encourage them, and, you know, all the, the relational aspects, you're going to end up with a subpar relationship. And certainly that, that can be true of the Holy Spirit as well. So all that said, now let's turn to the actual topic, which is these four times in the book of Acts where the coming on of the Holy Spirit happens after salvation. And I, I want to spend some time on this because you really see some interesting things happening in the, the movement of the book of Acts and, of course, in what, what is being showcased here for us. So the first one is when the Holy Spirit first comes to the followers of Jesus, and this is in Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing, uh, dis, uh, distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterances. Now, of course, the text goes on to tell us what those utterances were, what they were speaking. It was they were speaking actual languages. It was just languages that they, they did not know, that they, they, they did not have. It was not their authorship, or that it wasn't languages that they, they could speak, and thereby purposefully interpreting, because that, that wasn't theirs. Um, and so that wasn't what was happening. It was clearly a work of the Holy Spirit going on there. And, and so, of course, you know, the, the text goes on, Peter announces to, to the people that have gathered that are looking at this because they thought, well, these people are drunk or something. And then Peter, of course, shares the gospel with them. And the result of that is that many, many, many people, uh, literally thousands of people end up coming to Christ that day. So the church is grown dramatically. And so this first instance, we'll say it was um, the followers of Jesus received the Holy Spirit. Okay. And it was dramatic so that they knew, hey, the Holy Spirit had actually come. And of course, Jesus had promised them that that would be the case, that the Holy Spirit would come and the Holy Spirit did come. And so they were well aware of that. And the result was the church grew dramatically as a result of that. 
And so then the next instance of this is in chapter 8 of Acts. And to follow the narrative of Acts to this point, uh, it, it tells us the, the formations of the church as it started out, these missionary journeys between Paul and between um, Barnabas as they're going out, they're sharing the gospel, and then, of course, others start doing that as well. In Acts chapter 6, the church chooses six of these men to be deacons in a church context uh, so that they could keep the the apostles and the elders, those that God has charged with the teaching and preaching of God's word, uh, so they're not caught up in the daily distribution of widow roles and all that kind of stuff. So they choose these six. Among those six were two different guys. Um, you have the uh, you have um, Philip, and you have Stephen. And of course, Stephen's story kind of goes first, where he becomes the first of those of that group, that class. Uh, to be martyred for the Lord, right? That's under the hands or under the watch of the Apostle Paul, who wasn't the Apostle Paul yet. He was Saul, right? And he was persecuting Christ. And then, of course, that story concludes with Paul meeting the real resurrected Jesus Christ, who's like, hey, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And then Paul ends up being called as an apostle by the Lord. And then he goes off. He's in the wilderness for three years. Uh, preparing, and then uh, eventually is affirmed as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ by James, and and then begins his ministry. Meanwhile, uh, Philip is one of the other ones that in Acts chapter 6 was chosen as a deacon, and he goes out sharing the gospel. Well, he goes to Samaria. It says in verse 4 of chapter 8, um, Therefore, those who had scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the crowds with one accord were getting attention to what Philip was saying as they heard and they saw the signs which he was performing. So there you have it again, right? These signs, these wonders are there to, to showcase that this is the true gospel, right? That this is the um, the word of God being presented to them. And he goes on preaching. He shares the gospel with them. The result is they have a pretty dramatic conversion um, and people are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says in verse 14, now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God and they, they sent Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them, and they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they began laying on, laying their hands on them, and they would receive the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw this, the Spirit... Uh, oh, lost my place there. Um for he had not yet fallen upon them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they began to lay hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And what you see is, this is seen by everybody 
And there's there's quite a bit of surprise. And why is there surprise? Because the Holy Spirit has come on who is this? The the Samaritans. This is not the Jews. This is not the people of God. This is not the seed of Abraham. This is another group. These are I guess you'd call them close quasi uh Jews. They're they're similar, but they're not traditionally a part of the 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 blood of Abraham in that sense. Um, they're, they're not from the good side of that anyway. Um, and so they're traditionally rejected by the Jews, right? They're not part of the chosen people. And yet here they are. They've, they've heard the gospel and they have accepted the gospel. And then now Peter, the you could call him the head of the church. He's not exactly. He's just one of the apostles, but he's an important apostle, right? He was one of the original ones that walked with Jesus. And he's the one that that Jesus says to him that he will be the, the one on which Jesus builds his church. And now we don't, we don't believe that to be a papal seed or, you know, any, any of that concept. Uh, but, but it is to say that he is an hugely influential, important part of the church. And the result is that, um, the result is that his say matters quite a bit, right? He's, he's a very powerful voice. And here he is now witnessing that the, the Lord has come on, that the Lord has come on these who were, are not uh, typically part of the, the family of Israel, the, the people of God. And yet they have received the Lord and they've now received the Holy Spirit by the prayer of the Apostle Peter. So it's confirmed by the one of the chief apostles in the church and cannot be denied. So this is the first time that you see this Holy Spirit come on somebody who was not just simply a Jew follower of Jesus. This is now a Samaritan. This is a group of Samaritans that have accepted the Lord and received the Holy Spirit. And that's very fascinating because you don't see them renouncing their Samaritanism. You don't see them moving away from, you know, their ethnicity or their anything like that, right? To, to become a Jew, to be a part of the people of God. Uh, this was all they did was accept by faith through the work of Jesus Christ and they received the Holy Spirit. It's a whole new paradigm shift, something very different than what was before in Hebrew thought and, and Jewish belief as it related to becoming a, uh, a, a member of God's chosen people, right? You could, become a, you could become a naturalized Jew in a sense, but you had to renounce what you were and you had to go through the process, right? And then start observing the law of Moses and start observing the ceremonial law 
and start observing all of that, right? Sabbath worship and temple and sacrifice and all these sorts of things. Whereas here, the Samaritans do not do those things. All they do is believe by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and they receive the Holy Spirit. And that is proven by the fact that Peter is the one there doing that. So now fast forward to Acts chapter 10, and you have the the story of Cornelius. Cornelius was a, a centurion. He was a Roman. He was a Gentile. He was a centurion. But unlike most of the centurions, he has a different attitude. Uh, he's a, a God-fearing man and a righteous man who treats the Jews well, uh, Jewish people well. Uh, that's pointed out, you know, in this chapter. So you have kind of an interesting thing here. He's a man of character. He is a believer in the Lord. And what happens is he receives a vision from an angel who tells him to, hey, go summon this guy named Simon Peter, who is in Joppa, uh, to come and speak to you. And meanwhile, Peter is up on the rooftop of the house praying, and the Lord gives him a vision where he lowers down this blanket, and in this blanket are all of these uh, four um, four-legged hoofed animals, which would not, not be clean eating, right? This would not be something that Peter would eat. And yet he's told by the Lord to get up, kill, and eat. And the Lord tells him that three times and then corrects him when he says, no, Lord, th these are not holy. These are not clean. I can't eat them. And the God And God reminds him to not call what God has made holy unholy. And and then he receives this visitors from Cornelius, these guys that, that Cornelius has sent to go fetch uh, Peter. And so Peter goes with them because he understands, oh, okay, this is what the Lord is doing. He is calling me to go talk to this Gentile, which is unusual and, and not something typically that he would otherwise be doing. And and you see this exchange between the two of them when he arrives and he understands now what it is that the Lord was telling him that he is not to call people unholy or unclean. It says in verse 28, it says, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man who is un, who is unholy or I should, I should call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without resisting with any objection when I was sent for. So I ask for what reason have you sent for me? And Cornelius tells him, hey, this this angel showed up. He told me to go fetch you. So I did. And then Peter responds with what he realizes now that the Lord has called him here to do. And it says in verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not, uh, God is not one who shows partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and who does the, and who does what is right is welcome to him. Then the words he sent 
to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know the things for which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, from the baptism, baptism with John proclaiming, you know of Jesus of Nazareth and how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with the power and how he went out doing good and healing all those who, anyway, and he goes on to share the entire gospel with them of how Jesus came, he went, he died, he was raised by the Lord on the third day, and how to be in right relationship with God. And the result of this all, it says in verse 30 or 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gifts of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. So what you're seeing here is a progression. First, it was just the Jews who followed Jesus who were able to receive salvation in the Holy Spirit. And then it was the Samaritans who were able to receive salvation through Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. Now, here in Acts chapter 10, it is the Gentiles. It's Gentiles who are receiving the Lord Jesus, salvation through the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. You see this progression that is happening, that first it's the Jews who follow Jesus, then it's the Samaritans, then it's the Gentiles. Now what's very interesting is in the fourth, uh, fourth situation here, it, which is in Acts chapter 19, you find that it is the Jews now who are receiving this Holy Spirit. So it says in Acts chapter 19, beginning of verse 1, it says, It happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the upper, the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not received it or even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what baptism were you baptized? And they said to him, Into John's baptism. And Paul's response, he said, John's baptism was the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him, and that is Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophecy. And they were in all about 12 men. So how do we put all this together? Well, two things are happening. One is there's a progression going on here, right? Which is that first it starts with the followers of Jesus. Then it goes to the Samaritans, right? They're, they're next closest to Jews. And then it goes to the Gentiles, which are not like Jews at all. And then it goes to the practicing Jews. And so what's the progression? Well, the progression is first the gospel is provided to the followers of Jesus. Then the gospel is provided to the, the Samaritans, which are 
closer to the Jews, then it goes to the Gentiles, and then it goes back to the Jews. And the progression you're seeing is, of course, how did the how does the, the gospel play out in the book of Acts? Well, first it's the followers of Jesus, then it's the Jews, then it starts being rejected by the Jews, and so it goes to the Samaritans, it goes to the Gentiles, and what started out in the beginning as almost exclusively Jews becomes a church that is actually more full of Gentiles than it is of Jews. And then it's the Gentiles that are sharing the gospel and some Jews are are becoming saved, right? So you see this progression of first it's Jews, then it's Samaritans, then it's Gentiles, then it's back to the Jews. And then it switches. It's Gentiles. The, the church is primarily Gentiles. And then it's the Samaritans. And then it's back to the Jews. And the broader theme in all of this is, first of all, everyone can receive salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the proof of that is all these groups receive the Holy Spirit, right? We saw the followers of Jesus receive the Holy Spirit. We saw the uh, Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. We saw the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. And then we saw the practicing Jews receive the Holy Spirit. All of them were able to be saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. It did not matter who they were or what they were or where they came from or what their nationality or origin was. They could receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the same time, their salvation had nothing to do with their following a specific thing, right? They didn't have to be Jewish to be saved. They didn't have to be Gentiles to be saved. They didn't have to be Samaritans to be saved. They didn't have to be practicing Jews. And at the same time, it also means that they did not have to give up what they were to be able to be saved. They did not have to give up what they were to be saved. The gospel is very simple. The gospel has no human effort in it. The gospel is simply the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He did the work for us that we could not do ourselves. He did the work that no sacrifice could do, that no following any laws could do, that no nothing could resolve or solve for us. Jesus took on the full wrath of God for all human sin, and Jesus took the payment of the cost of sin so that we could be restored in right relationship with us. And I'm very much convinced that these stories in the book of Acts, it's not about the receiving the Holy Spirit as a separate thing to salvation. The point of that was to show us that literally anyone can be saved. Anyone can be saved if they turn their heart and life over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith Unpacked podcast. We're so thankful for your time. We hope and pray that these encourage your faith and walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to hear past episodes, you can find them on our website at faithunpacked.com. We'd also invite you to subscribe on your favorite podcasting site. If you have any questions, feel free to hit us up on social media, or you can send us an email at faithunpacked at gmail.com. And we invite you back next time as we continue to unpack our faith together.